Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Jim Murdoch. Jim is an athletic trainer and is the medical coordinator for USA Wheelchair Rugby and has been with USA Wheelchair Rugby as their athletic trainer and, and medical, what do, I, what do I want to say, medical guru and man of all skills for over 20 or nearly 20 years now. So he's a bit of a legend and I'm super excited. He's a lovely guy and I'm, I'm really glad that he's wanting to join us and give us a little bit of his knowledge. So welcome to the podcast, Jim. Well, Liz, thank you very much. And that was a very, <laughs> very flattering introduction. That, you know, I'm, I'm only awed by other legendary people like yourself. <laughs> Jim, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into working with wheelchair rugby? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, I think like a lot of things in my professional life, I didn't do many things straightforward. <laughs> I believe back in 1996, actually, I started with the United States Olympic Committee Sports Medicine, you know, as part of their volunteer program and did a few programs in, in the States. And, you know, my goal was to get engaged with the Olympic programs. Uh, and again, when I started, the Paralympic movement in the United States was really very small infancy, didn't really, and I honestly didn't know a lot about it. Hmm. And then I believe in the year, yeah, I was around the year 2000, I got connected with USA Boxing. And I was with hmm. them up until about, it was, to our big tournament we had in uh, San Jose in 2003. And the medical coordinator for them told me, he said, hey, I just got picked to be the medical director of sports medicine in Athens. We're going to Athens. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> so jump ahead a couple months and it's you know early spring. I get a letter from Colorado Springs. Jim, congratulations. You've been selected to be part of the sports medicine staff to go to Athens with wheelchair rugby. <laughs> and i like, what? I thought this was they made a mistake. And then, and I said, well, maybe there's, you know, it's a little bit of a joke. I call Colorado Springs and talked to the director back then was Ed Ryan. I said, Hey, Ed, what, what's going on? He goes, ah, oh, congratulations. You got picked to go to the Paralympics with wheelchair rugby. I said, Ed, I, I thought I was with USA boxing. He goes, Oh yeah. Well, we had to, we had to make a little change. The athletic trainer that was with rugby lovely young lady is pregnant and will be due during the game. So we needed to get someone else. <laughs> and I said, how many people did you ask until they said no? And you came to me. He goes, no, 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 it's not like that. You, you know, we think you got enough skills. You got the background. You work with combat sports. I said, I, I, I just don't know. He says, well, you, you know, if you don't go with wheelchair rugby, you're not going to Athens. I said, <laughs> I said, okay. Uh, he goes, listen, they have a training camp in Lake Placid. At that point, at that time, I lived up in northern Vermont. And they said, go over, mm. check out their training camp. And if you like it, let me know and we'll go forward. I said, okay, let me check this out. So long story short, I go over there. Lake, and I had been to Lake Placid a number of times helping out and get there. Knew nobody, not one soul. And I also knew nothing about the sport. You know, I tried to find out as much as I could, but, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of information out about the Paralympics, let alone wheelchair rugby. Yeah. Well, long story short, the first practice when I saw young men getting into wheelchairs and, you know, hurling themselves full speed and full contact, <laughs> I said, I like this, this sport. This is a sport for me. Awesome. 
<laughs> Sign me up. And that that's how I started. That was so that was the spring of uh, yeah, so spring of 2004 was our first mm-hmm. and I went to Athens and I've been with them since. It's never been a dull moment. It's been a tremendous learning opportunity as a clinician because you know, every athlete has a very very unique physical predisposition and but I mean it doesn't hurt that in all of the years I've been with them we have never finished lower than third so we've been on the podium at every tournament we've ever gone to so uh, Mm. that makes it a little lot more fun yes and there's been some very very close games in some of those tournaments the 2016 Rio games went into what three lots of overtime before yep. unfortunately you lost by a point to Team Australia and Team Australia, yep. Team yep. Australia and us have a tremendous rivalry. We actually again just lost to them last uh, week or so ago in Worlds by yep. I think by two goals. So yeah, it it it, it you know for me and winning is you know I know winning is an important aspect of of sport, but. In my role, I, you know, do I like to see us win? Absolutely. But I, mm-hmm. I don't get as wound up about the wins and losses. And I and I know in sometimes that I think it, it might upset or get some of the guys a little concerned that I don't care. It's not that I don't care. It's just that my job isn't about winning. My job is keeping them healthy and making yes. sure that they can continue to play. And, and again, just have, you know, having just a little objectivity difference yep. than the coaches and the athletes. Yeah. And so in your words, what does the sport of wheelchair rugby look like? Like what is it? Just in if you can really <laughs> well, you briefly know, it, it's it's interesting because the, the the sport, I mean the term rugby is a term, it's not rugby as most of the world you know recognizes it. Because I had people say, So wheelchair rugby, how do they how do they do a scrum? <laughs> so <laughs> it it's again it's it's, and again, it's called wheelchair rugby because when it first started, it was called murder ball. And yep. <laughs> murder ball probably isn't, isn't really the best moniker to have when you're trying to get sponsors and uh, endorsements. <laughs> Basically, it's played on a basketball court and it's four athletes on the court at a time. And the goal of the, you know, it, the object is to get the ball across the end line. Very similar yep. to rugby. But the athletes in chairs... It's full contact chair to chair. So their chairs are designed and modified to take hits. So some people, you know, say, oh, so it's kind of like demolition derby or, you know, well, it's a combination of a lot of sports. And the athletes that are on the court have different degrees of injury, so they have different classifications. So some have more function, some have less function. The more function tend to be the playmakers. The less function tend to be the blockers. And again, it's the, you know, you want to try and get the ball across the line and you want to, or you want to try and prevent the ball from getting across the line. It is of all the Paralympic sport is the most physically contact sport there is. It's also the only Paralympic sport that I know of that you can get classed out by being too functional. So again, it, the classification system is pretty intense and, and designed to make sure that, again, from a safety factor, but also somewhat of a level playing field, that the athletes are at a, a, a you know, a moderately even level of function. Yep. And so 
What do you see as the most common issues medically that you face with that team? Well, you know, it's the, the, the biggest, I think the biggest issue for me initially is finding out what each athlete's injury is, what level of mm-hmm. injury, what is their disability, and, and really then getting a baseline of their function and fitness so that we can determine how we can best help them become better and more function and, you know, better as an athlete. When I first started, you know, by far our biggest injury was shoulders. And a lot of that was because most of our athletes really weren't in good training routines, weren't lifting, weren't really doing year-round functional conditioning. So we mm-hmm. saw a lot of overuse injuries. We saw a lot of, and again, we have a number of athletes that played other sports. So from those other sports before their injury, they would come in. And so, you know, when we started looking at them, we had a number of our athletes with significant shoulder instabilities, which does not mm-hmm. bode well if you're propelling yourself with your arms in a wheelchair. Or so try to block. We, you know, it's, <laughs> it's not just the propulsion. It's actually the standing in one position and being buffeted by, you know, other people's chairs and trying to maintain your one location on the court too. Absolutely. And, and just, you know, stability in your chair is right. Mm. But I think now we're at a point where, you know, we still see some shoulder things some of it's, I think, over right now, I think a lot of it's more overtraining and we're trying to get a better handle on that. But we really see more of just general medical components. And again, because of the variety of backgrounds, we still see a number of people with urinary tract infections, you know, different types yeah. of skin injuries, uh, skin infections. Probably the biggest area that's injured the most are the hands, even though they're wearing yeah. gloves and they pad it up pretty well. Uh, we'll we'll see significant injuries there, and again, the, the the challenge is that because of their spinal cord injury and where they have feeling, sensation, and motor function, they can have an injury and not even be aware of it for not a couple minute, days. Yeah. You know, or they, you know, they play an entire game or a practice and they take their gloves off and they say, "Oh, wh- where's this blood coming from?" So, yeah, it's uh, I, you know, when I talk to other athletic trainers, I go, "How do you deal with that?" I go. Actually, I don't have to deal with it. It's helping my athletes learn how to better take care of themselves. You know, mm-hmm. it's it, it's like anything. It, you know, the more you see, the better, it'd be more ed, uh, experience you have in handling it. But what we're what I'm seeing now with our athletes is we're getting, you know, we're, we're, our athletes are in much better shape. And as I said earlier, you know, I'm a little concerned about some of our overtraining. And it's really now how do we fine tune some of their physical attributes to get them healthy maintain their you know function and endurance and help them in recovery and as you were one of my you know great teachers the nutritional aspect has become even more important and we're finally most of our guys are you know really you know queuing into how to how do we eat well because we tell them there's yep. no such thing as eating perfect but how do you eat mm. well to enhance your physical components and help in recovery yeah but then again, a lot of just mundane medical issues that, you know, like any athlete will have, you know, coming through COVID, we came through very, very well. We only had, I think, four of our athletes develop COVID and not real mm. any significant problems. But and again, I, when people ask me that question, it's not like this is what I see all the time. It, it really changes. You know, I have an athlete yeah. right now who we think he has a detached retina, but we don't know how he did it. And it was after the games and 
we're trying to figure out, all right, how does, how did this happen? Um, mm. Probably the biggest challenge is that I'm not with them all the time. So a lot of telemedicine yep. and a lot of communication becomes really important in keeping up to date with what's going on with them. Yeah, because it's a decentralized program where they're all living and, and either playing or working in their own home environments. And then they come together on camps and they used to be like four day camps with in the year of a, a major games, maybe a couple right. of weeks in a, in a residential situation. So yeah, you, you don't spend a lot of time face to face with them all the time, do you? No, not a lot. We're, we're, we're actually doing more camps, which, you know, as they say, is a, is a, a curse and a blessing. But, you know, again, at most, it's probably only once a month. And again, we're still probably around the five-day camp. But the big component is, and, and our most of our guys, and, and actually we have two women on the team this year, which is a great plus, mm. making them stay in communication with me. And, and And I will check in with them every once in a while, but I'm not, I don't you know, call them every week and say, hey, how are things going? I've really told them that because they're adults, they're in charge of their health. And if they need me, I'm here to help them. And they're really fairly compliant. Yeah. But <laughs> it it's seems taken like... a long time to get them there, hasn't it? <laughs> a long time. <laughs> a, a, a long time. Well, and I think part of that too is I think with any healthcare provider, you know, it, it takes some time to get the trust of your athlete. And when you're not with them all the time and you're only seeing them when it's really not in good situations, that trust takes some some doing. And I think we've also been fortunate that we have some guys on the team that have been here for a while. And I think that the atmosphere in the community has developed so that they, that I hope they see that I'm here to help them my job is not to keep them out. My, my, hopefully my role is to keep them active because, you know, if they stay, if they're out, they're not getting any better. Yep. And so I've got to ask, how did you get the nickname Dirty? Because your <laughs> nickname on the team is, is Dirty. And uh, m- most people, I, I, I think some of the athletes don't even know what your, your actual real name is. Uh, so how did that come about? Well, it, <laughs> it, it is interesting. And it actually started the very first training camp I had with them. Mm-hmm. And again, this was in uh, Lake Placid. And at that time, we had four healthcare providers. We had an athletic trainer, two physical therapists, and a nurse mm-hmm. as part of the healthcare team. And, you know, again, my first time there, I was trying to fit in. I was trying to figure out what can I do to be helpful? How can I learn about this sport? Mm-hmm. And it was probably the... I don't know, the second day, you know, one of the guys said, hey, can you fill up my water bottle? I said, sure. Where is it? It's over in my bag. So I went over and I looked and I picked up the water bottle. And again, our guys, because they wear gloves, they have a lot of, they call it sticky, but it's basically, you know, this adhesive glue, pine tar Mm. muck that anything you touch stays with you. Uh, So this, this bottle was just, just covered in it but so i went to fill it i went to take the cap off went to fill it and the inside was even more disgusting than the outside <laughs> and they started looking at these guys water bottles and i don't think they had ever been washed i think it was the Aww. mindset that when they were done they just put the cap on throw it back in their bag and take it out for the next practice 
Oh. And th this one bottle, it, it actually had mold growing in it. So oh. I went in and talked talk to uh, uh, Kevin Moody, who was the athletic trainer at Lake Placid at that time. I said, Kevin, I, I, need, I need 15 water bottles. And he goes, what? And I showed him one. He goes, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Threw all the water bottles away. And I said, all right, I'm going to have to, you know, be nice about this. So I found out their names, put their names on them, put their numbers on them. So they had these nice new water bottles. And I thought, man, I have done such a great thing for these guys. Well, <laughs> believe it or not, they were not happy. <laughs> because they, some of them were, as I say, stupid stitches about their water bottle. I've, I've had that water bottle for seven years or whatever. I said, yeah, I can tell. And I'm, I'm amazed you're still alive. So I, threw, so, I, so I threw all the water bottles. And hence, since I threw away the dirty water bottles, mm -hmm. um, it wasn't right away. It was like, hey, yeah, we have this guy over here who thinks yeah, we're all dirty. Yeah, we should be, yeah, he's dirty. And, that, and it wasn't, wasn't like a, but in, towards the end of the camp, it was like, hey, dirty. When I'm looking at it, I go, oh, hey, okay, yeah. Uh, and, and, and it just kind of stuck. It, yeah, you're right. It's funny because when, when we're at different tournaments and, you know, you meet somebody first time and an athlete rolls up, hey, Dirty, can you come over here? And I'm like, yeah, just a minute. And they go, what, what's that all about? So, you know, one of those endearing terms that sports love to give on, give you. But, I, yeah. yeah, you're right. There have been athletes like, what is your first name, by the way? <laughs> um, yeah. But, well, yeah. The, the, the funniest part for me, actually, at this last tournament, because – in Denmark, it was Worlds, and my wife came over. And after mm -hmm. one of the games, I'm out talking with some of the athletes, and one of the athletes go, is your wife here? I go, yeah, she's right over here. He yells, hey, Mrs. Dirty, come on over here. <laughs> and she's like, hey, yep, I got it. I know who I am. Came right over. <laughs> and, um, it's a, it is a moniker. There's, it is held its course, and it is actually known mm -hmm. throughout the world when I, uh, in the wheelchair rugby world, so. Uh, I guess that's one way of getting some notoriety. Oh, but I, I love that because, you know, the concept of what's healthy for an athlete and what <laughs> athletes overlook in some of the most simplistic kind of ways, like the number of times I've picked up water bottles that are moldy on the inside and you're like, oh, my word, this yep. person, like, and they're like, Oh, well, it's just good for my gut, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. I said, you're trying to grow in your own penicillin. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So speaking of fluid, uh, there's a good segue. I like that. Is, there, is that something that is an area of concern with the, the players? Well, we initially, a couple of years ago, there, exactly, we we were seeing that we weren't really noticing how much they were drinking. He said, all right, we need to start figuring out. And then it's very wise and intelligent nutritionist said, Hey, why don't we do urine testing? So we do urine testing on them primarily right now to check for dehydration levels. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of other things, it's taken a while. We, I think this past year was the first year we were really seeing 80 to 90% of them at hydration, you know, optimal hydration levels. Um, mm. And again, we're only testing them at camp, but we're just trying to get them to understand how important staying hydrated is in your training routine and recovery. Typically, we tr we test them the day we arrive at camp, a couple days afterwards, and if we're there for a long time, a day off, 
Yep. And at tournaments, we we test probably every other day now. Just mm-hmm. and again, it's 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 a little of a, a little bit of a hassle for them, but you know, it's it takes three minutes for them, and then just for us to coordinate and measure everything. But it really has given the the guys a pretty good feedback about how much fluids they have to drink. And one thing we found out, though, with again, most of our guys have spinal cords, and I'm saying, why aren't you guys drinking more? Well, mm-hmm. and they had a very, you know, very appropriate answer. Well, it makes me pee more. And again, yep. from an able-bodied perspective, we're like, yeah, well, you have to go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom. But for most of these guys, especially if they're in their rugby chair, it's it's a real hardship to get, mm. you know, undressed, unchanged, you know, depending if they're using a indwelling catheter or a leg bag or a Foley catheter to urinate. And then we just had to come up with some better educational processes and ways for them to help them urinate. And a lot of it also, I think, was giving away some of their independence. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of our athletes work really hard to become independent in their chairs and being able to do their daily functions. Uh, So, again, it was a learning experience, I think, for us, for me particularly, and, you know, we wanted them to drink more, but then how can we help them, you know, with, with whether it's cathing or emptying their leg bags or just, you know, helping them do that. Yeah. Um, and particularly and when it, it came to travel, right, because, you know, what we found is that day after arrival at the camp and, and also when they travel internationally, the access to bathrooms and the ability to just use a bathroom that's oh, clean is... yes. Very difficult for someone with a fairly high-level spinal cord injury, you know, because most of these are quads, um, so high-level spinal cord injuries. And so, you know, that was also just something that it's learning how to manage the expectation but also the practicality of of that side of things. So what have you found from the travel perspective? Well, one thing that we've learned, especially long flights, again, they're not getting out of their chair. So we, what we try to do is we put as many of them together in the aisle so there's no other person next to them. So if they have to cath, they can cath yep. in their seat, you know, without, you know, any obtrusion. And then again, you know, staff helps them by emptying the bottles. We tape up the bottles so no one sees what it is. It doesn't take a genius to kind of figure out what's going on. But by giving them that help, uh, we saw some improvement. And also, you know, when we got to the airport, we would send a staff member up into the airport as soon as we could and find the closest bathroom so that they knew where they had to go and mm-hmm. so they could get in, get to go to the bathroom. And the other thing we looked at is our, you know, our layover times. And some yep. of our layovers, we were an hour, which is mm-hmm. not enough time for, uh, you know, when you're traveling with 12 or 14 people in wheelchairs. So the, no. you know, we've looked at some of these practical components to help them. And it sounds doesn't sound like it's really, it's not rocket science, but it is. It's how do we do some practical applications to reinforce them hydrating and being able to urinate and take care of themselves and then, you know, maintain some, you know, great hydration levels. Um, I think the other part of it too is not only educating the athletes, but it was really educating the staff. Um, You know, like, well, can't they just do that by themselves? Yeah, but they, they could, but it would take a little longer. But if you help them, it's mm-hmm. easier. And we've had we've always had a phenomenal staff that, you know, they get it. They, you know, they understand how it works. And I think it comes back to that trust component. When you have that trust, 
things happen a lot easier. Absolutely. And so how has the game itself changed over time? You know, obviously oh. getting in there really early on when Parasport really still didn't have a lot of funding, uh, wasn't really well recognised, certainly in the US, probably, you know, a little bit more so in Australia, but it's how has the game itself changed? It's, it, from when I started to now, it's a completely different game from a number of factors. One, number of, t- number of countries that have teams. When mm-hmm. I started, there were probably four teams in the world that were good. Canada, Australia, New Zealand was really good. We were, and then every once in a while, you know, a European country would, would be good. Or every once in a while, Japan could be all right. Now, there's, I think there's over 124 t- countries that have wheelchair rugby. Mm. And at Worlds, we had 12 teams there. And, you know, most of the games were within one or two goals. So mm. it was very, it's become very, very competitive. The yep. pace of the game has increased tremendously. And some of that is because I believe it's, we're seeing the athletes become more fit and more conditioned and trained to be able to play the sport. We're also seeing numbers of athletes that are not spinal cord injured that also may be uh, amputees or have a, some other neurological component, which may give them a little more function, a little more speed. Another another thing, thankfully, that came into the sport is what they call a, it, it's, it's a goal clock. So you mm-hmm. have from the time you take the ball inbounds, you have 40 seconds to score a goal, um, mm. which and when I first started, there was no such thing. So oh, right. some of those games were, God, awful boring. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to remember. I think we played Belgium one year, and they had two or three ball handlers that were pretty good. They just held the ball. Mm. You know, they just passed the ball around. And I think the final score was some ridiculous, like, Seven three seven four. Oh, seriously! It was horrible. It was. It was like, <laughs> are you kidding me? And I, and I give them credit. You know, they they knew that they had to do something to control the game, and they did it. Mm. It was very very similar to what happened in U.S. basketball years ago when they didn't have a shot clock. And mm-hmm. you know, the coach of North Carolina at that time, Dean Smith, created what he called the four corners. They just held the ball. And just passed mm. the ball all over the place, and Princeton did it. So, I think that was another big change in the sport. Classification has also changed, where they're really becoming better at classifying the athletes into their, you know, appropriate class. Where in mm. the past it was really kind of haphazard and wasn't really done as well. I think another big component is it fund. And you mentioned it's funding. More more countries are getting teams and they're getting funding. Of course, the United States is the only country in the world that gets zero funding from its government, but other countries are getting that funding and their programs are getting better. And, you know, and that's one thing that we have to get a little better at too, but, and just the recognition, you know, as you mentioned, Rio, I I think there were almost 27,000 people in the stands watching that game, Mm. which is, you know, when we played in Athens, I think we had 1500 people, (laughs) Um, but, you know, even in Denmark, when we had worlds, I mean, for the gold medal game, even though Denmark was not in it, the place was full, and there was Good. like four or five thousand people there. So the recognition and the uh, the knowledge about the sport has really changed a lot. You know, the pace has come a lot better, and and I think it's like any sport. We're, there, there's probably going to be some more things that are going to change, but it's now become you know recognized as one of the 
more exciting Paralympic sports. And it is, it's because of, it's because of the action. It's not yeah. slow paced. It's, no. it's intense. It's intense. Yeah. And so what are your biggest learnings over that 20 year journey that you've had? The biggest thing I've learned is that I haven't learned enough. It's the, the one aspect that working with this population has done for me. I really believe it's made me become a more knowledgeable, but more thorough clinician. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of times, in, I, you know, I look back and you know, I'm dealing with able-bodied, we would just, you know, we, the presumption is everyone's the same. And, you know, if you have an ankle sprain, you just treat it like an ankle sprain and you just move on. Mm-hmm. But with this population, their background is everyone's different. Their injuries all different. I mean, you can have two athletes with a C6 or a, say a C5, C6 injury, and they will not be the same, not even close. Mm-hmm. So my, my, I really believe my clinical skills improved. My diagnostic skills had to get better. But I think the, but the other part is that I really have learned how to engage the athlete as the patient in their care. I don't think we do that enough with other athletes. We just kind of tell them this is what we're doing. But this population has a really good handle on their body and what's happened and what they've gone through. And you really have to listen and pay attention to what they are telling you in conjunction with your clinical examination. It takes a little more time. It's a little more thorough. But I really really think I've gotten much better as a clinician. So, again, when I go back and, you know, work with able-bodied athletes, my process is completely different. It really is different. And it's – but it's also the other aspect is – Really, how can we in the medical field provide better care to this population, disabled sports, not only in wheelchair rugby, but across the whole gamut of disabled sports? There's just not enough medical providers. But, you know, that's one of the things I've been trying to do is get more people engaged in treating this population. Um, It it, it is a little humbling, you know, because I think in the past it was – I. I believe I was probably a little too cocky and overconfident about what I knew. But again, as I started dealing with this population, it really brings me back to earth and realize that everything you see is not what it seems. You know, there's going to be a lot more underlying issues, pathologies and restrictions that we'd have to look at to get a better handle on what's going on. Mm. Yeah, because I can imagine, you know, even something as simple as, as you said, like if so, if there's a broken bone, for example, in an area that they can't feel, you you don't feel pain, but they may feel other sensations that right. could be misinterpreted in in you know, just something completely different. And so, from a clinical perspective, it's trying to work out well, is that symptom that we see something that's directly related to that area or is it being referred from something else that's happening in the body? Is that something that you see quite frequently? Absolutely. A lot of times, you know, again, sometimes the athletes will get into this mindset, you know, and what you refer to is when they have different sensations, they refer to that as autonomic dysreflexia. Mm -hmm. So autonomic dysreflexia is an indication where, and it occurs below their injury site, they'll have some un, unusual or different stimulus. So it can be, you know, a shoe that's too tight or a cut or, you know, again, even something like their bowel or bladder. So they'll start having 
their blood pressure will change. They may, their heart rate may change. They just feel different. They don't feel sick. They just mm -hmm. know something's wrong. That's uh, yep. typically spinal cord athletes also do not sweat. So they may start sweating. Mm -hmm. So they have that predisposition of that, that, you know, sometimes I'll just say, you know, my aura. And a lot yep. of times they'll default to, oh, I must have a urinary tract infection. Because mm -hmm. typically, not typically, but a majority of the time that could be it. But I would always say, okay, let's make sure it is a urinary tract infection. Let's get some urine, but it's also, let's do a body check. Let's see. And there have been a number of times when, you know, they think it's a urinary tract infection and they, because they haven't checked in a while, they have a, a an ulcer on their heel or they have a mm. bed sore on their ischial tuberosity. And they, because they can't feel it, they don't check it. And I go, mm. oh, geez, I didn't know that. So it, it can be a little challenging, you know. And again, they, they kind of get it, but they know that when they're around me, okay, all right. We're going to have heel checks, we're going to have butt checks, and we're going to have everything else checked every day. Yeah, because <laughs> I want to see what's going on. And just to reinforce to you, you need to do this. Yeah. Um, especially, you know, when they're home, they're not in their rugby chairs for three hours. You know? yes. So at one of our practices, they could be in their chair for about three hours. And that's that's a significant amount of time. And during a camp, they're doing that at least twice a day. Yes, absolutely. Yep. I'm working on that. I'm trying to get that changed. <laughs> well, it used to be three times a day, so at least we got it down from three to two. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yep. So, Jim, I could talk to you forever. Uh, can you can you kind of give us your your most favorite and your least favorite thing about the work that you do? So, start with the least um, favorite, and then we'll go to the most favorite. The least favorite, I th I think the least favorite is. The lack of recognition by the, of the sport and the athletes and just, you know, the kind of in the shadows kind of mindset. You know, people always say, wow, those athletes put in so much time. And, you know, they do. But yep. the staff and other people mm -hmm. behind the scenes put in as much, if not more time. And I don't think, you know, the recognition kind of isn't there. And again, we don't yep. all do it for recognition, but it's I think it's always nice that you get some reward or recognition for, you know, not just for the effort, but so some of the things you have been able to do. And that recognition is, you know, not only by the general public, but in, sometimes it's also been by USOPC. They just mm -hmm. sometimes forget, you know, some of the things that happen. Yeah. Man, most favorite, that that is really tough. Like I said, I've been doing this for a while and I, and I really I can honestly say there have been no times that I have ever wished that I wasn't doing this. You know, working with the athletes has been always a pleasure, but I think working with the staff that we have had has been remarkable. Just some mm -hmm. amazing people. The travel. I've been very fortunate. I've traveled all over the world. Yeah. Um, and it has some really neat perks. Mm -hmm. I, if I had to pick one highlight, I, it would more than likely be 2008 in Beijing when we won gold. Yep. We've won gold in a lot of tournaments, but unfortunately at Worlds and the Paralympics, we haven't won gold except once. And that mm -hmm. was, you know, I tell people, I, I did not feel ashamed, but when our guys were on the podium and they were playing the national anthem and I was crying, it was that emotional mm -hmm. at a time. And, you know, not only for the effort the guys put in, but, you know, to realize that you're representing your country and the rest of the world is watching that was pretty, pretty special. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I even I, I tell people I, I'm I'm honored and blessed to be able to work with this these young men and women. Well, they're younger than me, but these men and women <laughs> and the effort they put in. Yeah, I've been doing. I and you know, people say, "How long are you going to do this?" <laughs> but, you know, as long as they want me, uh, I'm definitely in for Paris. So, guys, if you're listening, I'm definitely in for Paris. Um, and then I'm, that'll I'm, be games number six it. for you. Is that right? That'll be my six games. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Some people say that besides a USOPC and employee, I will be probably be I would have gone to more games than any other athletic trainer uh, in the US. <laughs> that's so, a, that's an impressive record. It's fun. It's well, in, you yeah. know, it's it, and you just the, the number of people you get to meet is is just remarkable as well. But yeah, it's it's been. I, I'm not going to say it's been a good run. I still, I think I still got some gas in the tank. It's still fun. Yeah. Still looking for that elusive gold at the Paralympics. So uh, mm. if I can, if things I can do that can help them get that, that, that makes it worth it. Good. So Jim, can you give us some recommendations that you'd have for athletes, particularly wheelchair rugby athletes, but any Paralympic athlete, any key recommendations that you have for them? I think the biggest component is even though you know your body, listen to your body. Mm. Take care of yourself. Try to approach your training in a really balanced way. As I mentioned earlier, we're starting to see some of our athletes overtraining, and it, it doesn't. It's not beneficial. You know, it's mm. really kind of doing the simple things to take care of your body, creating a nice balance between life, work, effort, and sport. And it's harder than it sounds. You know, a lot of people, because I know a lot of our guys right now, you know, we won silver at Worlds and they're not happy. So I can imagine because they were told to take two weeks off. I know they're not doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's also, you know, taking care of your body, finding a way to recover and reaching out to people that can help you uh, mm-hmm. are important. There's numbers of people that want to help and can help because as an athlete, you can't do it by yourself, even though you think you can. You really can't. You need to have a group of people that's going to support you and help you in a, in a, in a, in a lot of different ways. And, and I think the last part of it is be patient. It doesn't occur yeah. overnight. It takes effort, but that effort takes time. Yeah. And if you, if you try to shortchange yourself in the time, you will fail more times than you will be successful. And what about recommendations for practitioners particularly athletic trainers who may be looking to getting into working with sports or particularly Paralympic sports yeah I think as I mentioned a little earlier it's really do your homework understand you know your athlete understand the sport was important you know that the mechanics and the strategies of the sport are important but understand what's going on with your athlete get as much of a detailed history as you can on paper, but also in person. Take the time to listen and take, you know, the effort to find out what they want to tell you. You know, I think in, in all sports, we, you know, we talk about a pre-participation physical or an examination. And for the most part, they're not good. They're not adequate. You know, we try to like some places like do the military message, you know, method. We're going to run you through stations to get you out of here in 15 minutes. Well, that's, <laughs> That just doesn't work. It just doesn't yeah. work. Well, you know, it's okay to be wrong. You know, you're not yeah. going to know everything, you know, but learn from it. I had, a, I had a phenomenal mentor when I was in college, and he said, 
you know, mistakes are stepping stones of knowledge. You learn yeah. from mistakes. Not that you want to do something intentionally wrong, but, you know, you're, you're not going to know everything. You use your time and experiences to get better. But with this population, and I think with any any population, it's it's really be diligent, listen, and get the your patient involved in their treatment and care. Don't dictate to them. Yep. Beautiful. Well, dirty. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate your time and your energy and your commitment to the program for, for such a long period of time. I think it's quite rare that an athletic trainer will have gone to a game six times for the same sport. Like I've certainly seen people change sports or change kind of the roles that they have, but your role has been really consistent through that time. So well done to you and and for, you know, I guess the, the whole team in, in making sure that's a good environment for you. Before we go, though, there's one last question, and that's what's your favourite food? What's my favourite food? Mm-hmm. You're going to laugh. My favourite food is haggis. 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 As in a, a pure Scottish haggis? With oh with meeps, tatties, and a great whiskey sauce. Yes. <laughs> wow, I've never had that one come up yet. So that is definitely a unique favorite food. Would you ever go down the vegetarian haggis line? I have tried it, and mm-hmm. I will say that I have tried it. <laughs> <laughs> And tried it once, but not going back. <laughs> that was, hey, uh, you know, I, I, I will try most foods, but there are some things that are sacrosanct. And, and again, being in the <laughs> States, it's very difficult to get haggis. So, yes. Um, I was going to say that requires a, a special trip or a special delivery. So, uh, I have to think I, about it. Re- I will not reveal my sources, but I do have <laughs> haggis on January 25th of every year, Robbie Burns Day. I do have uh-huh. haggis. Uh-huh. Yes. Beautiful. And I hopefully with a, a, a good scotch whiskey in the sauce. Oh, well, you know, quick sidebar. I don't know if you knew this, but when my wife and I got married, we had a Scottish wedding. All right. And mm-hmm. we had, yes, and we had 70, seven zero types of scotch at our wedding. Oh, seriously? <laughs> Did you try yes. every one of them? <laughs> well, we, we, we had... Uh, one of our my daughters made little placards for each scotch, talked about mm-hmm. it, and then we had just you know little tasting cups so people could not drink the bottle. But I have tasted every one of them. Yes. Wow, phenomenal! Well, there's a gem that I didn't know about you, Jim. So <laughs> <laughs> if I ever have questions about Scotch whiskey, I will be coming to you. <laughs> well, I, 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 I'm not a I'm not a perfectionist or a, or a, a connoisseur i just know what i like and I, I try to try a lot of different ones every time i go to great britain i bring home a certain number of bottles of ones i cannot get in the states and uh, mm-hmm. my wife says i have to stop but uh, we'll see <laughs> so do you have a special room i i know you're sitting in your man cave is there a special <laughs> section of the man cave that actually is devoted to your scotch whiskey no not not here but i do have a special cabinet in our house that is overflowing at the point but yes we do have a, i do have a spot in our house i uh, <laughs> I, I i do not trust myself to have scotch in my workshop so. <laughs> yeah fair enough awesome well thank you so much jim for your time really appreciate it your expertise is 
unbounded. So, you know, you are the guru and I will always come to you if I have questions. But thank you so much for being on the program. Liz, the honor and privilege is all mine. It's lovely talking to you and we definitely need to meet up again before it's too long. Jim has a really important message about building trust between athletes and service providers and the importance of that trust in honest communication because without that we can't really do the work that we need to do and provide our expertise in the most appropriate manner. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions or any suggestions on people you'd like to hear from, please leave a message on the website. And I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Chris Murphy, who is a paracyclist.